Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 51. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is John Stepek, executive editor of Money Week, Britain's leading financial magazine. John is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Skeptical Investor, How Contrarians Bet Against the Market and Win. And you can too. It's published next month in March 2019. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Hi there. John, we've got to talk about your book, obviously, because it's a fascinating title and something that uh, people who've been in the markets a long time know about contrarian investing. And it's a great place to start for anyone who's looking to get into finance. But before we do that, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, I'm the executive editor of Money Week magazine. Um, I've been with Money Week for the best part of 15 years now. Um, and our Kind of, it's obviously obviously it's a weekly magazine. Although every time I say the title, to someone people do tend to turn around and say, "Is is that a weekly magazine?" Um, <laughs> so you know, I, I feel I need to mention that just in advance, just clarify that. Um, but yeah, so in our every week we kind of round up what's been going on in the financial markets, um, but we try to do it from an, an analytical slant. Um, and usually what we're trying to do is cut through the noise, if you like, um, and get to the, the core point of what's going on. And I think that's increasingly important because obviously one of the big things about the uh, you know the financial world and, and you know the world in general today is that we're bombarded with information all the time. And so increasingly what you need is not more information but more filters. Yes. You need something to you know cut out the noise and amplify the signal, if you like. Um, and so I think basically that's the kind of service that, that we try to provide our readers. Um, and yeah, so I've been doing that for a while now. And I also write a daily email about the markets. Um, so in my own way, I'm contributing to, to the noise on a <laughs> daily basis. Um, but again, I do try and kind of slice through what's going on and just get to the, the core underlying themes at any given point. So that, that's fascinating. So how, how did you get involved in the financial markets in the first place? What was your what was your journey into it? Uh, well, I uh, started out primarily as a, a writer. Um, so whenever ever since I've been a kid, really, I wanted to write for a living. Um, and so I spent you know a, a fair bit of time experimenting with different ways to do that. Um, while I was at university, I studied business studies and then specialised in psychology. Um, but after I graduated, I, while I found psychology very interesting, but I didn't fancy, you know, another set round of training to kind of go into that field. Um, and so after a few sort of false turns and uh, trying my hand at being a, a scriptwriter <laughs> with the, the hopes of uh, a glamorous sort of early life, um, I eventually kind of went back to Unity retrain as a journalist and um, within there I, I specialised in finance and I started out uh, writing uh, news stories for Teletext. Uh, oh, brilliant, you, Teletext. You guys remember Teletext, yeah. <laughs> we, we, should, we should really explain what Teletext is for listeners, obviously, who haven't, who haven't heard of it. Teletext was 
It was a. I, I don't know if it still. It doesn't still exist, does it? It could. It could possibly still exist, but it was a. It was, it was basically news provided over the television, powered by a Sinclair ZX Spectrum. Yeah, basically somebody <laughs> typing it all out, um, and you had like the technology of a, the ability to read a screen of text and then wait for another screen of text to appear. And it was like like magic in the old days because it was like wow it, you know it, it's not it, just it reminds it reminds me there's a, there's a satirical website called the Daily Mash which I dare say a lot of a lot of listeners may have stumbled across which yes. on on its good days can be very good indeed uh, it's like a British version of the Onion theonion.com and the best I think that I think the Daily Mash actually had they came out with at least one spin-off book and the spin-off book was entitled and it was one of their fake headlines the spin-off book was entitled Isle of Wight to get Cfax. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant i used to use i used to use teletext to download share prices at the end of the day every day and i used to plot them on yeah. charts because i'm a chartist a you know, technical yeah. analyst and in the old days you could either subscribe for the, the finance you know the what well, i can't remember the name of it now but it was a, i think it was called market eye from the stock exchange which cost two thousand pounds a month which was, oh my God. which was just crazy to get real-time prices or you could get closing prices free off, off Teletext. So, of course, I just plotted like over 100 shares on my charts uh, every day to get a, an idea of where markets were going to go. And, of course, so nowadays with all this data and all this free data, it's, it's, I, it's just amazing that we have access to it. And I, it's still, you know, free charts and free data and free real-time everything. It's just incredible. Um, but that's where we came from. So, but we've got it off is. at a tangent. Sorry, sorry, John. Please, please <laughs> not continue. Not at all. I know. I always, yeah, I always find teletext fascinating because you're right. I remember when I went there, I, I suddenly occurred to me for the first time that my God, somebody actually writes this stuff. Yeah, this is it. Doesn't just appear on your screen. And um, it's like it, we had. I remember we had a word count of something like sixty-five words. Um, per story, and so you would get we'd get in at like seven in the morning. You know, obviously, as the markets were opening, um, the kind of stuff would come off the, the regulated news service. So BP would report the fourth quarter results, and they'd have twenty minutes to figure out what it meant and turn it into a sixty-five word story. Wow. It would actually make sense to the people who were going to switch on at eight o'clock when the market opened. That's great so, training. Great training. Isn't oh it? yeah, no, it was ideal. I mean, I do think if there's any kind of young, you know, would-be journalists listening, then working on some kind of newswire. And I mean, teletext really was. It wasn't. You know, that's not what it was described as, but that's what it was. You know, something something that has to turn the the raw data into the stories that then often other journalists, maybe in the you know the, the newspapers or something like that, will use as reference points for their own stories. Um, but yeah, no, that it was great training, um, and it was a real baptism not, of fire. Not to rain on your parade, John, but <laughs> that, 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 the, 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 the role that you've just uh, alluded to, that kind of stuff's done by Bloomberg by machine now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah not a lot it is. Which is um, kind of scary. Um, in other words, the sort of the, the broad uh, initial raw response to sort of you know market events, corporate events, corporate profits uh, outcomes. That that kind of stuff can already be done by computer. Um, oh, absolutely, it's terrifying. It, it, it is it's quite scary. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's um, you know this is part of the kind of if you like the white collar job cult that, that people are always worrying about. Um, I mean, I tend to think that it, that's overplayed. Uh, simply because we'll, 
you know, for, for every kind of bit of news that can be automated, there'll be someone else kind of popping up to form an opinion about it or to write the inevitably biased algorithm that uh, pulls out the, the bits in the news that, that it wants to report and, you know, kind of obscures the bits that it doesn't. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can definitely see that uh, it's probably not that long before, I mean, news is already a commodity, you know, no one pays for it. Um, and so probably the way that you want to produce it is going to have to get a lot cheaper too. And uh, using, you know, like a computer program is probably the best way to do that. So you were telling us about your journey into finance then. So it went from teletext and then what what happened after that? Well, basically, um, I mean, teletext, obviously, even at that time, um, was, was coming to the tail end of its uh, ability to survive. I mean, in effect, one thing that people did use teletext for almost exclusively was finding cheap holidays. Um, and when the internet came along, that kind of source of revenue was completely wiped out, basically. And so I could see the writing on the wall and I decided to, you know, go and look for another job. As it was, I should stay because obviously <laughs> I had to get redundancy pay off. But <laughs> <laughs> that was a lesson that I learned. Um, but yeah, and then I went to work for, for Money Week from there. They were looking for a website editor um, and someone to write their, their daily newsletter. And that's where I started out. Um, again, kind of looking at what happened in the markets every day, but this time having much more uh, opinionated take on it. And that was, that was really good because I got a lot of freedom there to actually start talking about um you know some some really interesting things um at the time bill bonner who um, i imagine you're both familiar with um owned the company and um i would read his daily reckoning and that was the first time i'd sort of read anyone writing in that style um or with that sort of level of cynicism about the financial markets and I re think re that re realism, some of us might say. Oh, yeah, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think Bill can tip over into cynicism sometimes, but it's um, not, I mean, I, yeah, it was really kind of inspiring to me. And also at that time, I mean, no one was writing in that bloggy style. You know, kind of blogs were still, I mean, we're talking about kind of 2005 roughly here. And um, email newsletters were an unusual thing, certainly in the UK. Um, and again, yeah, blogs were, were not, you know, they were just, they were almost like podcasts are now, they were the sort of, the hottish new thing. Um, but that idea that you could address people directly and talk about subjects like actually, you know, what's, what's, why do we even have a Federal Reserve in the first place? You know, uh, what's, what's going on here is, you know, this to an extent is all a massive stitch up. And I thought that was, you know, that was very inspiring. How would you, how would you define, um, Prospect. So you, you said you, you find the kind of the, the tech in, intrusion into journalism a little bit overstated. But I, I mentioned in dispatches is due to a guy called Preston Byrne, who I've only just recently discovered via the, the joys of Twitter. And he's a, a member of the ASI, Adam Smith Institute in the States. He's a lawyer and an, an ASI member. And he, he recently coined, came up with this little beauty, which is this little tweet of his from earlier in this month. Um, Coal industry dies. Press, learn to code, miners. <laughs> Overfunded tech company dies. Press, LOL, Theranos 2. Suck it, tech bro, man babies. Overfunded media company lays off 10 people. Press, capitalism is evil and this is the end of our democracy. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I do 
think that um, I tell you what, actually, I saw a, I watched one of those uh, talks at Google the other day. Um, and I mean, Tim, actually, you've, you've mentioned these before, but uh, these are where Google gets some kind of high flying, you know, um, or a particularly popular person to come in and give the equivalent of a TEDx talk in front of yeah. all the engineers. And um, there was a guy that Merrin's just interviewed in the magazine. Sorry, Merrin Somerset Webb is, is my um, editor-in-chief um, and boss and colleague and mentor and inspiration, et cetera, et cetera. And she uh, talks it's not to the, it's not the Oscars. It's not the Oscars. It's not the Oscars, John. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, you know, well, you, you know, I said, I'm getting these clubs in while I can. She, might, she might be listening, to be fair. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but, um, she interviewed this chap that wrote, do you know, he had this book, uh, Winners Take All, uh, about how the elites kind of you know, took over the world. Um, yeah, it's basically sort of anti-Davos book. Yeah. Uh, this chap called Anand Gerritarit. Did it Haradis that wrote it? And he was giving the talk. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I can't even talk with my name. But um, he's uh, a chap who uh, was a columnist at the New York Times, a very high profile journalist. And he's standing up there talking about how, yeah, as you say, tech grows have taken over the world, they're kind of earning too much money, um, they're sort of cementing their own positions by. You know, engaging in forms of philanthropy that make us all feel as if they're doing some good, but in fact they're just, if you like, entrenching their their, their positions. And to some extent, I have a lot of sympathy with the argument the guys make. Um, you know, the the kind of uh, uh, the point one percent sort of feather in their nest, and then sitting at Davos and telling the rest of us how to act. That that all great. However, one of the examples that he used was Google kind of damaging the, the newspaper industry by essentially poaching all the advertising. And he's sort of trying to make out that this is a uniquely bad thing for the world or for, as you say, democracy. And I've said, I just can't agree. I know that I say that as a journalist, but I am, I am not very enamoured of our profession. Um, I think it does tend to overstate its importance. Um, and I think that if I'm 100% honest, I think the vast majority of people should try and ignore as much media as they possibly can. Um, I think most of the time that you spend reading newspapers or really watching any short-term kind of um, you know, news media would be far better off spent reading a book. Or listening to a podcast. Or, or listening or, to or obviously, obviously listening to a podcast. That's, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the other alternative. I'm trying to think who it was that said, Journalism today largely consists of saying Lord Jones dead to people who never knew Lord Jones was alive. <laughs> so um, w- with regard to, to Google and, and adverts, um, in some ways, and your, your opinion is, is very interesting because I've never heard a journalist have that point of view. It's always that Google is bad because of what they're doing with, with news. Isn't there a problem though with fake news and once you once you get an aggregator like google pumping out news in various places in facebook then it's very difficult to know the difference between real and fake news but if if at least you're going to a new source you're going straight to the the well if you like the direct source 
whether it's skewed or not, at least you know it has some form of providence. Well, I said there's there's a couple of arguments wrapped up in this, and and they're both valid. I think is is the main issue. Um, I mean, I think that Google and Facebook, and specifically, both get away with murder. Um, and most of this is not about uh, you know, in all these disruptive companies that we talk about, and the ones that have you know made a lot of money. It's not about the technology primarily. It's about the fact that the technology has given them a way to bypass existing regulations and constrictions that established industries already have. Mm. So, for example, um, Google is a publisher. doesn't want to be called that for the reasons that Google is a publisher that does not have to worry about libel laws and that does not have to uh, you know, concern itself about you know, the, the facts or the providence of um, the, the stuff that it's putting out. And Facebook's actually far worse on that front. So it's, it's a publisher that doesn't have the restrictions or the regulations that a traditional publisher has. And that, that goes way beyond the, uh, you know, the legacy stuff. I mean, the dead tree press and all that sort of stuff, you can certainly you know, you know, talk about that aspect of it. But it's the same with the, the high street. Um, you know, Amazon, for example, is a retailer that doesn't have to worry about uh, business taxes on, on the high street, as well as obviously physical shops. Um, or Uber is a taxi company that doesn't have to worry about employment laws or licensing. So I think that, you know, there is a very valid objection to the, the tech businesses from, from that point of view. The stuff about fake news, though, I must admit, does kind of stick in my gullet a bit because, um, I mean, fake news has always existed. You know, every single newspaper. I mean, the one thing that I would say about uh, our press, particularly the British press, is that at least you know the biases you're going to get yeah. whenever you... You know, pick up a paper. You pay I'll your money, you one you thing. Your choice, basically. Aye, yeah. If you if you buy the Guardian, you know what you're going to get. You know, and if you buy the Telegraph, you know what you're going to get. So I don't think the the bias is particularly, um, you know, it's not hidden from anyone. But I do think that the, I mean, one thing, for example, the the I mean, sorry, to bring up Brexit, but Brexit really has sort of polarised the uh, the newspaper business to the point where I personally find that I struggle to take anything written about it anywhere with any kind of seriousness at all. No, because it, it all kind of comes across as fake news. And each kind of um, journalist in each kind of paper has got its own agenda. I mean, for example, I mean, like, okay, well, I'll bring up the Financial Times. Um, I think uh, to be very clear that of all of the newspapers in the UK, the Financial Times is by far and away the best, um, primarily because occasionally some of the stories have even got facts in them. But if you look at any of their Brexit coverage, it's, it's, it's impossible to uh, you know, take anything out of it because um, you know, for, there's this sort of like obsessive focus with James Dyson at the moment. You know, every time can I, that a Dyson employee gets fired or laid off for who knows what reason? It's like front page headline in the FT. No, because Dyson's a prominent Brexiteer. So I, I, I do think that um, the, uh, if you like, the polarisation of our politics is exacerbating uh, an existing problem with the traditional news media, um, and that is that the sort of the unreliable gatekeepers. Um, you know, they complain about Google and Facebook, and there's an element of fairness to that, but they themselves also cannot really 
be trusted. It's taken me a long time to appreciate this, but um, helped by things like um, Yuval Harari's Sapiens and a lot of informed commentary about what news is and its limitations. I've now come, it's very easy to say this in the context of finance, and more so perhaps than most other uh, fields, that, and and this is something that we'll touch on Paul, particularly given his job as a technical analyst, in relation to markets and market commentary, there is only one uh, objective source, and that's the price itself. Everything Mm. else is subjective. Absolutely, exactly. Um, It's the only thing you can't refute and argue about because it's there. I mean, you can, between technical analysts, you will see potentially a bias. So one might be always looking for a reversal and one might always be looking for a, a trend to continue. But ultimately, it's like a photograph. You know, what a trained photographer will be able to see what other people can't really see, even though the picture's exactly the same, even though the, the scene is exactly the same. That's how I describe it. But what you're saying about the news is is very interesting in, 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 in as much as that we all knew that news news is biased depending on where you pick it up from, but at least we accept that bias. But what Brexit has really done is just shown the extent of that bias and it's it's got very ugly. And I think even... Even people who would not normally be drawn into this world, and because we're all in finance, we're in this world all the time and we're filtering information all the time and we have a certain amount of scepticism to start with, I think the general public is possibly, potentially, been drawn into this as well and saying, look, how how biased is this really? You know, this this you can't just constantly be bombarded with negative reports on Brexit and think that that is the only way forward because, for a start... You know, the majority of people voted for it. So they're not going to be responding positively to that piece of information anyway. And I don't think you can really fool the general public. I think to think that they're stupid is 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 wrong. And if they, they're attempting to do that, I think it can it can backfire on them. It's, but going back to Google and, and the technology companies, I think you talked about teletext in 2005 and you know it's not that long ago it doesn't feel like that long ago and the way these tech companies have grown so fast the legislation hasn't been able to keep up with it but i think now they they're seeing all these problems i think there's problems with amazon uh, that you that you mentioned um the problems with uh, the lack of regulation and and uh, with so-called news providers are not liable for the news. I think this is all going to get tightened up. And I think that's possibly why we're going to see a big reversal um, in all these tech companies. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, and, and I think the risk is that the uh, the approach might end up being, well, actually, given, given the way that regulations are made, it'll almost certainly be the wrong approach. But, you know, you've got a lot of people talking about these as if they're monopolies. Um, and, I, you know, I do think that, kind of misses the point slightly because then what happens is you start saying, well, yeah, but how can we break up Google? Because it is, you know, the best search engine people are choosing it, you know, or how can we break up Facebook because of the network effect? You know, there's, there's no kind of value to being on the network that no one else is on. If you instead look at it as, well, actually, no, these guys are publishers, so they have to abide by publishing rules. Then, I mean, A, the profit margins will get wiped out because of the number of people that they need to hire. Um, to kind of meet all those those rules, but B, you will then make all the other media organisations competitive with them again. The same for things like Uber, you know, you have to turn around and say, 
because I guess the other thing is it's good because it does help to push the envelope in terms of defining models more clearly. It's like, you know, is it reasonable to have the black cabs having a sort of technical monopoly on part of London? Or, you know, are, are people, you know, who supports the taxi drivers and who supports Uber? You know, that kind of discussion, I think, is important. And it's similar with Airbnb. You know, Airbnb is ultimately a hotel company that doesn't have to abide by the rules that restrict B&Bs and hotel companies. So how do you then loosen up regulations where they should be loosened up and where they are essentially redundant in the internet era? Um, and where do you figure out well, which of these rules should still apply? You know, and how do we protect consumers in this kind of you know environment? Um, and I, you know, I, I guess the same things happened whenever the internet was first taken off. You know, it, obviously it was the wild west, um, and you know, uh, there was it, it didn't matter whether well, there was a tiny community of people who were online, but now everybody's online. And so it can't be the Wild West anymore. It has to have the, the kind of structures of, a, if you like, a civilised society so that we can all transact and trust one another online. There are some fascinating implications in relation to tax. I mean, Paul's already highlighted that you know the legislation seems to be woefully sort of behind the curve relative to what's happening in the real world. I remember, I forget who it was who said it, but someone pointed out that it, in, in the States, you've had Silicon Valley's growth and the way Silicon Valley works is its, it's, its primary product is bits and bytes. It doesn't, it doesn't has, which has no, you know, material substance. Whereas the pre-dot-com uh, uh, industries dealt in 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 moving matter around and, and mass and things that were concrete. And the the bits and bytes economy is fundamentally less heavily regulated than the than the drop things that, that are on your foot and they hurt economy. Um, <laughs> But there's, there's, I mean, so, so tax, for example, this was, this was a, a piece in the um, Sunday Times this morning, and they were going after Jim Ratcliffe and Enaos because he's apparently going to relocate um, to Monaco for, for tax purposes. But the way, I mean, I, in immediate, the moment that I saw that, I, I retweeted the, 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 um, the quote from Lord Clyde. And if people aren't familiar with, with this, it's probably the most... Uh, famous observation about tax that's ever been expressed in, at least in the UK. And he said, and this is in 1929, so this is 90 years ago, no man in the country is under the smallest obligation, moral or other, so to arrange his legal relations to his business or property as to enable the inland revenue to put the largest possible shovel in his stores. The inland revenue is not slow and quite rightly to take every advantage which is open to it under the taxing statutes for the purpose of depleting the taxpayer's pocket. And the taxpayer is in like manner entitled to be astute to prevent, so far as he honestly can, the depletion of his means by the inland revenue. Now, I, I retweeted this, and then immediately someone said, you are so vile. And I'm just thinking, well, <laughs> well, where's, that's a well thought that out going? argument. <laughs> where's, where's that coming from? So anyway, so she... She immediately got blocked, but uh, you know I don't, I don't have any truck with, with that kind of nonsense. But the, the point about tax is a live one that we we, we haven't yet reconciled ourselves to a, a, a sensible way of progressing in relation to, let's say, you know, very wealthy individuals and very large companies versus smaller individuals and smaller companies. And then just to add an, an extra level to this debate, I, I was just reading this morning, and this is actually the scariest thing I think I've read this year. It's uh, a piece by Russell Napier who, for those who don't know him, is a financial historian, but he's also a financial analyst and an author. 
Now, his, his site, which is called ERIC, Electronic Research Interchange, may not be available to private investors, unfortunately, because it's designed for institutions. Nevertheless, the ERIC site, which is free to enroll at, he has a piece uh, that he put up quite recently highlighting simply the fact that uh, German government bond yields are now so low that German insurers cannot possibly be making any money because they have basically sort of guaranteed return products. Do you know, do you happen to know, either you happen to know what the current 10-year German Bund yield is? It's supposed to be 0.1% or something. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's 10 basis points. It's 0.09%. Yeah. I was going to guess one around 1%, but my God, that would yeah, be... It's, that no, would it's, be... it's 0.09. And then, okay, so you, so you think this is, this is really, really uh, dangerous stuff. And he points out that Moody's is basically, a, the ratings agency Moody's, has expressed an opinion that that they that the German insurers may start to basically may start to fail this year because mm. there's, there's no way they can invest profitably with those kind of returns. Um, and just to fin- finish off on this, German pension funds. Okay, here's another question: What percentage of their portfolios do German pension funds hold in bonds? Sixty. Seventy-seven percent. They oh. have they have a whopping seven percent in equities but 77% in bonds that are yielding nothing. This has accident waiting waiting to happen all over it. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. So so where he's coming from, I mean, Russell Napier is, is, is a Brexiteer, I think, um, but he's, he's perfectly happy to sort of acknowledge this fact. But he's making the point that you've got all these forces, the forces of centralization versus decentralization in Europe, uh, possibility of capital controls that we, we saw obviously in Greece and Cyprus. But, you know, Forget the the localized impact of Brexit. Europe, can't, the EU, probably can't survive a recession now, in the light of just what's happening in Germany. You know, so the idea that Brexit is the story, it it is a story, but it arguably isn't even the story anymore. No, it's it's never really been the story. I mean, because the economy is the economy. I mean, you see how in the UK they're they're trying to say that the economy is doing so badly, and and yet. The, you know the FTSE's happily, you know, holding over the over the seven thousand level and and doing okay. I mean, it's like the markets broadly. I'm not saying it's going to necessarily continue, but the the markets broadly are doing fine, and and they they can't pick pin the tail on the donkey. It's just not working. It's just absolutely not working. But there can and will be a big recession because we're due one. And you're quite right to say, how is the market really going to cope with it? How how are these investors going to cope with it when they're so loaded up on, on bonds and bond yields, for whatever reason, start to rise? How will they deal with it? But to blame it on on Brexit all the time is just absolute nonsense. It's complete and utter nonsense. So, John, you you say you 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 studied uh, psychology when you were younger. Yeah, I, that was um, that was my uh, that, that's what I, I graduated in. That was, your, that was your major. Yeah, that was my major. Yes. So there's there's <laughs> a guy that I don't. Are you familiar with a guy called Morgan Housel? Yes. Yes. Morgan Housel, reader. I think he's a great great writer, great blogger, and I, he he recently came up with something called short money rules, and we'll include a link to it in the the show notes. Um, but number three I th- of his, I thought was fascinating, which is as this is why I was going to ask you the question whether you whether you agree with him on this. He says good investing is fifty percent psychology, forty eight percent history, two percent finance. Excellent. That's really good. <laughs> So, yeah. so John, how did you how did you actually decide to to write a book? There's many finance books out there, and obviously this this is this is different. 
And tell us, tell us a bit about the process of how you got into writing it and, and what it's about. After 2008, and to give you a bit of background, um, Money Week was, uh, whenever, you know, there's that story about the Queen saying a bunch of economists, why did no one see it yes, coming? Yes. Um, and lots of people saw it coming, and Money Week happened to be one of the people that saw it coming. Um, you know, we had a cover story one about the credit crunch in uh, mid-2007, um, like, you know, before Northern Rock went bust, uh, well before Lehman's or Bear Stearns went to the wall. And it was always obvious to us that something was going to go wrong uh, because the world was so grossly indebted. The US housing market had been a clear bubble that had popped. So clearly was, that something was going to happen. And once it did happen, I think the bears, like us, felt vindicated uh, to a great extent. Um, you know, I don't know how well, because it's, it's actually very hard to think back and remember the environment before 2007, I think. But certainly on a, a psychological viewpoint, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the doomsayers, if you like, you know, were constantly being criticised. Um, there was a sense that a lot of things were possibly a bit overstretched. The idea that there would be any big collapse was, you know, a, a kind of joke. Um, central bankers had figured everything out. Alan Greenspan was the maestro. So, you know, it was, it was a real sort of golden age, um, or seen as that. And then when 2008 happened, it almost felt like a, almost like a, a morality tale. Um, you know, you go into too much debt, uh, this is what happens. Um, and I remember you, you, feeling, you get you get bailed out by the Federal Reserve. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. That was and that was it. That's Rinse and repeat. Happened. Yeah, and you know, I think that was what took me by surprise. Um, come two thousand and nine was a that everyone did get bailed out. B that that carried on basically forever. Um, and C that the sort of the the, the great. The great clear out, I suppose, that I was hoping for. Never happened. It never happened. Never, never happened. happened. Aye. Um, and I mean, in my book, guys, I've got a, a kind of chapter where I, I talk a bit about Hugh Hendry. Um, and Hugh's somebody I have a lot of respect for and who I think um, was always an, an extremely entertaining character on the, the, the financial scene. And he, and he, um, went, down, he went down fighting. Yeah, I. He, he's he, just just for the listeners who may not know who he, Hugh Hendry is. He's um, a fund manager who ran a fund called Eclectica, and he was uh, a very outspoken gentleman. Uh, very interesting to listen to. Uh, very argumentative as well. If you were in a room with him, he would he'd be just sort of arguing almost for the sake of it. But I think what Hugh, uh, I mean, Hugh, Hugh, Hugh Hendry starts fighting empty room was a common common headline. Yeah, exactly. That. Yeah, and dog, it's it's. It's true, and he he did. He had some great lines, like particularly during the eurozone crisis. Um, whenever you know he was he was just basically kind of really cheeky Joseph Stiglitz, um, you know, the Nobel Prize winning economist, don't you know? Um, on Newsnight and uh, Colin, I think it was the former PM of the uh, you know I can't remember which which country it was, but one of the eurozone countries, a champagne socialist, and so you know it was a lot of fun. But he also, um, having had an amazing 2008, then went on to have a series of kind of mediocre years. And uh, around about 2013, he sort of had a bit of a, a road to Damascus moment. Um, and he actually had an interview with Merrin where he talked about 
being essentially too enamoured of the bearish arguments after 2009, and basically because of that, kind of missing the the massive rally and the you know the impact of, of all this money printing. And I think that that was what I wanted to try and get at um, with the book. I just wanted to wrap my head around the fact that I myself had become too enamoured of the bearish arguments um, and also and too angry in a way. You know, it's like I, I sort of thought the system, if you like, was was unfair. I thought the fact that, you know, the banks all get bailed out was problematic, to say the least. On the one hand, I could see why it was done, but then no consequences came of that. Um, and I still feel as if it's massively undermined the, um, the, the basis for, if you like, social acceptance, capitalism and free markets in the developed world. Um, I think one of the main reasons we've got the kind of political issues we do now is because people realised that markets did not work the way they were advertised to work. Well, I, I was so, just going to, I was just going to ask. Sorry to interrupt, uh, John. I was no, just going to no. ask you: Do you think that Brexit, Brexit, a Brexit, and b Donald Trump are a direct, albeit ten year later, response to the global financial crisis? I yes, actually, I do. I don't. I do. I think they're two different things. I think the Brexit is very different to Donald Trump. There's a really good quote from Charlie Brooker, of all people we know, the Black Mirror oh, writer. Yeah. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, he wrote a really astute, kind of jokey piece, and I think it was in 2011, and he talked about, uh, obviously he's a he's a civilian, if you like, he's, he's not involved in... He's a, he's a, non-co- he's a non-combatant. He's, exactly. And so he was, uh, he was at the, he's talking about going to the, the supermarket checkout and um, and after the kind of the financial crash and just looking at people and they're kind of all looking a bit dazed. And he was saying it was as if we'd found out that the, the, the world that we inhabited was just a backdrop that had been scrawled by a kid with Crayola crayons and it had just been ripped down. And I think that that's a very good description. I think that people suddenly found, you know, the, the rug turned out from underneath them. There's a massive psychological shockwave, basically. You know, you're suddenly told, hold on, see this thing that you use called money that you think has a certain value and has certain rules governing it. You know what? It turns out we can print as much of it as we want and give it to these guys that ruined the economy in the first place. And you can't do anything about it. Um, and it doesn't have the same meaning that you thought that it did. And we don't operate by the rules that you thought that we did. Um, and, you know, it's, it's in a way, it was almost like tearing up the social contract or a, or a core bit of it. Um, and I do, I think that the, if you like, the kind of backlash to that has been brewing for a long time. But it, I mean, it even happened at the time. When you think about it, all the elections that occurred after 2008 resulted in big changes. I mean, Britain had its first coalition government since the Second World War. That was a massive change. Uh, Barack Obama got elected in America, which was a massive change. So really, you know, Brexit and Trump are just following on from earlier rebellions that didn't have the impact that people hoped they would have. You know, Barack Obama and, uh, you know, David Cameron and the Lib Dems, they didn't change things. Uh, Now, you know, that got people more frustrated and now they actually want to see change. So at what point did you then decide to sit down and write your book? Oh, yeah, sorry, getting back. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going off in tangents. No, here. it's great, it's great. 
Well, basically, I mean, I, I just I, I was offered the opportunity um, by the publisher had him in house, um, and so I did kind of pitch them a few ideas. And one thing that's always kind of been at the back of my mind is uh, I've always been interested in contrarian investing, and my week tends to try to take a contrarian line. But what I've always found fascinating is that every fund manager you talk to will say they're a contrarian or a bit of a contrarian. But unlike every other kind of type of investing, like value investing or growth investing or momentum investing, it's not very well defined. There's a there's a whole lot of things that you would say, oh yeah, that's contrarian investing, you know, going against the crowd or you know, um, buy when the you know selling the sound of uh, sorry, buy when there's blood in the streets. All these kind of cliches, but they don't actually add up to very much or or mean very much. So I just wanted to try and nail contrarian investing down in a, a slightly more systematic way and try and figure out really what what does it take to approach the market and uh, you know in a contrarian manner. And really, I just decided that it was down to it's more of a mindset rather than any specific set of investing rules. And I suppose what I'm trying to do with the sceptical investor is to try to show, um, it's, you know, it's very much aimed at, uh, I feel like, normal people, you know, kind of um, retail investors. They try and show them how to see past the, the nonsense, if you like, um, and just approach the, uh, the market with a sceptical mindset. And did you find it a cathartic experience? Because you were saying you 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 were kind of overly influenced by the bearish argument. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good question. I mean, I guess one of the things that I learned, um, and I think I, I hope comes out in the book, is that obviously the markets and um, if you like the the moral environment um, are, are, are two different things. Um, you know, it's. You have your own cognitive biases. You see what you want to see, and that can have a massive impact on your investments if you're not careful. Um, you know, you've always got to be thinking, look, what if I'm what if I'm wrong? You know, um, I mean, there's a, quite a few quotes from Warren Buffett in the book, as as you would expect, um, and I always sort of. <laughs> Have a very mild dig at Buffett in these because I, despite myself, I, I I struggle with this kind of folksy down home sort of um, you know old man on the range type persona, um, but he still does talk a lot of sense. Mm. And uh, you know, is that rule of his? Uh, rule number one: don't lose money. Rule number two: don't forget rule number one. And it's one of the most irritating pieces of financial advice that you can read because clearly it's. You know, it's stupid. Anytime you put money in the markets, you're at risk of losing the money. But what he's actually saying is never, ever, ever take your eye off the downside. Um, and I think that, that that's one good example of something that I certainly uh, have tried to sort of implement in my own investing process because it's it's that thing of you you want to see something happen so badly that you focus way too much on the things that say that that's going to happen. Um, but then it turns out that actually you're wrong and there's no benefit to, you know, raging against the machine um, if actually what you just want to do is make some money. Separating out your emotions from 
the actual process of investing is, is incredibly important. And I think it goes back to that Morgan Housel quote, uh, Tim, you know, half of it's the psychology, almost the other half of it is looking back at financial history. Because the other things, if you look back and understood your history well enough, you'd have seen that this has happened before, including the bailouts. Um, so, yeah, I think from that point of view, it was a very helpful process. I'm not, that's certainly something I can relate to because I, I, I would have to confess that I, I've also fallen prey to narratives in the past that I'm now trying to sort of wean myself away from. It's the, there's two there's two sort of sources that's like one is another Buffett one which is I think someone once asked him you know how can I make a large amount of money very quickly and Buffett's <laughs> response was he sort of held his nose with one hand and pointed to Wall Street with the other so you can kind of acknowledge what Wall Street's like you don't have to endorse it you can just say you know <laughs> you want to do it it's over there and the other one is I mean, I'm not not a huge fan of Leonard Cohen but the the one song of his that I, I'm familiar with, which I think absolutely gets to the whole financial crisis and post-crisis experience, is uh, Everybody Knows, which mm. is a song that has the lyrics, everybody knows that the dice are loaded, everybody knows that the good guys lost. And it just goes on and on, this sort of mournful refrain. But we, we, we have to operate in, the, you know, it would be lovely to operate in a world where morality and, and justice prevailed, but that's not the world we live in. We have to live, we have to play the hand we're dealt, whether it's a good hand or not. I think some of that is timing i mean actually all of it is timing because as you were saying john before the lead up to the crisis uh you at money week and you yourself could see what was happening what was going to happen but it's just a question of how long it takes before it all unravels and when it does unravel how big the move is so we didn't uh, we've talked about the euro a few times on this podcast and it was exactly the same thing for me working in the city in the 90s seeing how the currencies currencies were put together and how the the criteria was cobbled together um to get all the currencies melded into one one euro and you just thought well this is just never going to work but 20 years later it's still going so Yes, ultimately, you can have this the sense that it's wrong, but sometimes you have to go with what what the market thinks is right. So the market thinks it, it can work, so therefore the euro can rally. But eventually, it will it will at some point break up because the reasons why it was put together, the the rules of it being um, integrated, are, ju are just not valid. So therefore. It, it has to break up. And it's the same with the financial markets. What What is going on is not the original design of capitalism. It's some other form of capitalism that, that I think most people who've been in the city are very uneasy about what, what's happening. And inherently, that doesn't mean that the, the FTSE can't continue to go higher and the other stock markets can't continue to go higher. As we're saying, there there will come a point when there is a natural downturn, and that downturn will be much much bigger than anybody's ever seen before, including the two thousand and eight crisis. Yeah, and that's that is the difficulty, though. It is that thing of um, it's then sort of thinking about well, a how do I what do I do in the meantime, um, and b what is the what is the sensible way or, or what approach can I take to this? I mean, you know, for, for example, to me, uh, one of the, the the opportunities is more to wait until the crash does happen and then be prepared to go in and pick up, you know, the the, the, 
leaf through the debris. Um, and anyone who did that after obviously 2009 did very well. Um, in fact, I remember actually, oh, it was a guy called uh, Tim Price came to one of our round tables and um, kind of round about actually, I'm sure it was kind of March, early 2009 anyway. And so he gave us six stocks that were bombed out value stocks. If you'd bought them, you'd have trebled your money within about nine months or something like that. So, um, you know, for all for all that you're uh, berating yourself, Tim, about uh, the kind of moral side, you, you still knew how to pick a stock at the time. Um, the ch- the chicks in the post, John. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you're very welcome. <laughs> Have my fun, please. Um, but no, it's you're right. It's the And I do think that, um, I mean, my own view for what it's worth is that, um, we need another shakeup of the monetary system. You know, so we've gone from you know the gold standard, and we've had kind of Bretton Woods and Bretton Woods two and the dollar standard. Um, that's now disintegrating. Um, you know, the, all of the things that we're seeing, like I think um, the the creation of Bitcoin, um, the uh, the increasing kind of fondness for the idea of MMT, which is basically just the government prints money to spend on infrastructure or welfare benefits or whatever, um, is all down to the fact that as a society, we've lost sight of and lost faith in um, money and currency. And we don't know what it's for anymore. So we're going to have to all get together, um, which is what a lot of the political shenanigans are about just now, and decide how to rewrite those rules um, you know, I I think um, you know. It's, I don't know if it's Charlie Morris. I think it's Charlie Morris has pointed out that ultimately, uh, money is a, a a social technology. Um, and right now, we're you know we're having to effectively reprogram that and think about well, what, what do we need it to do? Um, and it'll be interesting to see what what comes out of that. But it will be very messy as well. And I think it will have to involve some sort of either formal or uh, informal debt jubilee, um, which happens obviously either via debt being written off or just through rampant inflation. Uh, my money is sort of on the second one, but we'll see. John, we were at a, a conference uh, during the week, and one of the questions we were tossing backwards and forwards was, you know, what what is the one thing you wish someone had, had, had sort of said to you at the beginning of your career that that would have had value? Um, to have known earlier, what would that thing be for you? I mean, that's that is a good question. I mean, I, I think the the thing that would have added the most value would have been someone encouraging me to read more financial history um, right from the get go. I mean, I was always interested in financial history, but one thing I've noticed is that, and again, this came out of the financial crisis, was that the the memory or the cultural memory is incredibly short. Um, and one thing that I really rate Ray Dalio on, and uh, for those who don't know him, Ray Dalio is head of the biggest and arguably most successful hedge fund in the world, uh, Bridgewater Associates, is that he kind of really highlights the importance of looking back at history and trying to find analogues for the present time. And one thing, for example, that I really wasn't aware of until quite a while after the 2008 financial crisis was that the Fed had effectively done QE following the uh, 1929 crash and a depression in the 1930s. And for all that we kept saying that interest rates had never been at zero before, they did actually, in fact, get to zero during the 1930s 
um, for, for various short points. So I think probably um, having that focus on, you know, everything has happened before, and if you dig deep enough, you'll find something that, you know, maps very closely onto what you're going through just now. That would probably be the, the most useful piece of information. For those people who might be interested, Russell Napier, who I uh, name-checked earlier, he does, um, from time to time, run a course called A Practical History of Financial Markets. I've attended it. It's a, it was a two-day course, as I recall. Uh, it costs a little bit, but it's the, the proceeds all go to an educational charity. Um, if anybody gets, ever gets invited or gets the opportunity to attend, I'd thoroughly recommend it. It's time well spent. Yeah, it's a great course. Um, oh, you, you, you've done it. You've done it, John. Yeah, it's an excellent course, and I would thoroughly recommend it too. But Tim, I mean, I know you answered the question the, the, the other night, but I mean, if, what would you and Paul say to that? Because it is a good question. I think it's, it's kind of valuable information. Um, I'll restrict my answer just to the realm of sort of equity investing because we do other things, but I'll, I'll restrict it to equity investing. Earlier, we were talking about you know, the, the primacy of the price. The only thing I'd add to that, because it's a bit like peeling an onion when you're in, in the market. So there's always an extra level to, to investigate. But the, 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 next, the next stage down, the next bit of skin off of the onion is the, the price is, is fine. And we accept the primacy of the price in relation to you know, uh, a, a given instrument, a market exchange listed instrument. But there is also at the level of a, of a, of a listed business, another thing that's quite important or arguably more important than the price. And that's has the company itself actually performing? So although the share, the, the price of the share can be an opportunity, can either be an opportunity to, 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 to buy something very cheaply or to sell something very expensively, you have to look at the share price in combination with the underlying operations of the business. I cannot e emphasize this point strongly enough. I think most investors, whether they're prof supposedly professional or retail investors, are, are driven almost exclusively by the share price. But the share price is ruled by the mob, at least in the short run. It is just as important, probably more important, to look at the share price, having first had a look at the operating uh, results of the company. So you see this mismatch most starkly right now in a market like Japan and also Vietnam, where you have businesses that are performing outrageously well. They're generating, in some cases, record profits. But the share price is, is behaving as if these companies are on the, board, on the verge of insolvency. So all I'm saying is this is the bit that I, I wish someone had, had, had drilled into me at a far earlier level. The share price is fine, but you need to also take a very close look at how the, the company is itself performing. And in a sense, that's something that you only get access to four times a year. Mm. I, think, I think for me... Um it would just be simply to trust my instincts earlier on. You know, your instincts tell you when you're right. So, for example, and look for a hedge against your instincts, and I'll explain what that means. And that, and that, and that takes us back to psychology as well. It does, yeah. I mean, it is basically markets are psychology. It's like sports psychology, market psychology. It's all a mind game. And I, to be fair, I recognised that very early on. But um, having studied market history and crash of 1987, crash of 1929, before I got involved in the markets and I was using technicals, um, I could I look for the signs that it you know certain things weren't su sustainable, like the dot com boom. And again, it was obvious if you knew where to look that it was a crisis and it would it, it was a bubble, sorry, and it would end up in a crisis. But that also at the time I was thinking, well, you know what? And this was my logic. It was very simple. 
it costs something like £30,000 to have a 30-second advert or £50,000 to have a 30-second advert on ITV at the time in 2000. And I thought, Mm -hmm. if Google is a worldwide company, how much value would you put on that company being able to generate advertising? So despite the crash, I thought, well, Google's got to, it's got to do well because it's just literally so well known and it has the ability to generate advertising revenue. Um, but did I buy any Google stock? No, because I was skeptical about the, the financial system. Um, <laughs> and so, and then very similarly, more recently with, with, you know, Netflix, I used to, I was one of these people that would go to the video store and buy my videos or rent, sorry, rent the video and then take it back. And then went from video cassettes to DVDs that came in the post. And, and then as soon as you see the online world coming, it was like, well, it's quite obvious. This is, DVDs are going to become a thing of the past. It's all going to be online streaming. And, you know, there's this company called Netflix and people were being saying, what, what are you talking about, Netflix? And it's like, yeah, Netflix. It's the, like everything you get online. Or, yeah, but there's nothing on there. And, you know, I'll just get my DVDs. Everybody wants DVDs. And, and there you go. Did I buy any Netflix? No, it was a big mistake. So because we were operating in this pre-crash, post-crash environment, it was it's very easy for that to completely swamp your view but as Tim will tell you and I think he once mentioned a value investor called Peter Cundall who the late great as you described in Peter Cundall will always say there's always something to do and what I uh, relate that to is that even if you are bearish there's always something that will go up in a bear market now it might be harder to find but there's always something and there could be something that can survive the bear market and, and, and flourish. So don't take your eye off those sorts of investments, even if you're expecting a financial tsunami. Well, failing um, that, you just stand on your head and then everything's going up anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's what we've been doing. Or, or go to or move to Australia or something. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that, that, would be, that would be my one. Um, and uh, Paul, just before we, just before we move on, this, I've got a technical, very technical query. So this is from a, uh, a listener, Izet Hassan, who says, um, um, I really enjoyed listening to your discussion regarding trend following. That was with Paul and Niels uh, Kastrup-Larsen uh, on, on the State of the Markets podcast. So it's a technical question. Do you believe that systematic trend following can work as well on CFDs as it does with futures? Very technically, he says, uh, overnight interest makes his style of trading unworkable. Many brokers offer accounts which are essentially interest-free. His concern is to do with the fact that CFDs aren't on public exchanges and that the brokers act as market makers. A very technical question. Is that something you'd want to talk about now or should we leave that for another show? Well, no, we, we, we can talk about it. I mean, the, the, the idea of, of trend following is is not... Is not um, it, it, market specific. It, yeah, it's not market specific. It's all you're looking for is trends. Now, within the universe of stocks or products that you can trade, you're looking for a trend. So that means that as long as there are enough products in there and they're not correlated um, so that your risk is too much in one basket, if you like. So in other words, if you're looking for a breakout in in stocks and you see a buy in stock um, and, and, and in, a, in a group of stocks, say four stocks, and they're all bank related, then effectively you haven't got four positions. You've got one, you've got, posi- one. You've got one big yeah. position. So what you're looking for is non-correlated trades that hedge your risk 
And there's no reason why that shouldn't work on CFDs unless there's punitively high interest rates for some reason. So unless there's other some other technical factor. But the idea behind trend following is that if you're going to trade any market, you, any market at all on any exchange in any form, whether it be penny stocks or whether it's going to be the most liquid stocks um, in the S&P 100, say, you're looking for a trend. And at some point... They will trend and you're using a simple system to capture those trends. Now, that doesn't mean that it's an easy system to follow because even value investing Buffett style means that your drawdown could be 50%. And are you willing to sit there while you're losing money for two or three years for the prospects of making outsized returns when the markets all turn in a very synchronized way? Yeah. That and 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 so, it's it's in the short answer. It's not really um, markets or market types specific. It's it's a strategy that should work as long as you followed the rules correctly. And then what? And again, I'll just, I'll just bounce that back. I'm conscious that by by mentioning things like CFDs, we're getting into a realm of maybe slightly higher risk. To follow on from the sort of the 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 thing that you wish you'd been taught, what John sort of as we sort of roll towards the end of the the, the podcast, what would you say is the is the the best lesson you've had you've experienced in your career to date, the best learning mm. moment? I oh, I so the best learning moment for me was uh, Greece and the eurozone. Um, I think that really cemented um, the understanding that you. Do need to take a step back from your your own cognitive biases um, and put them aside because I was convinced that Greece would end up leaving the eurozone. <laughs> Me too. And <laughs> yeah, what I learned whenever the Greeks, it was specifically when the Greeks voted to stay with the euro, and that kind of hammered it home to me that no country will vote to leave the euro if the currency that replaces it is going to fall in half overnight. Nobody's going to vote for that. Um, I mean, I still think that to a great extent, the reason the Scots didn't vote for independence was for fear of what would happen to Sterling. At least that certainly was a, a big part of it. Um, and I think obviously that's even more so in an area where you know that if you leave, you're definitely going to lose the currency. So that kind of made me realise that A, the, the kind of European Union, if you like, and the euro is very much a political project. It's not bounded by the, uh, if you like, the kind of the gravity of economics in the same way that I might have assumed. Um, and it also makes me think that the way the euro breaks up is that the Germans get fed up and leave rather than, um, you know, Italy or Greece or another of the club med countries um, leaves or, or gets kicked out. So, yeah, I think that's probably the main lesson. Yeah, the, the Greek crisis reminds me of uh, 1066 and all that, which is uh, sort of uh, people of a certain age will know it as a sort of satirical uh, historical text by uh, Seller and Yateman. And there's, I think, I think they're, they're the, the people who wrote this one, which was, uh, you know, we, we, we spent most of the, the 19th century wrestling with the Irish question. And every time we came close to an answer, the Irish secretly changed the question. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Now, John, your book is not actually out yet. So it's, is it going to be out next month? It's out next month. It's out on March the 11th. Fantastic. You can already pre-order it if you feel so disposed. Oh, I feel so <laughs> disposed. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking for a link to that. So if we could ask if you could 
send us um, you know any relevant links for people to be able to contact you. Uh, we'll put links in the show notes for your book um, and obviously for Money Week. But if if um, people wanted to contact you, are you on Twitter or um, would it be via yeah. email? What's the best way? No, great. Thanks. Well, no, probably the best way to get in touch with me is via Twitter um, because I'm always equal surfing Twitter. So it's, it's at John underscore Stepek. Stepek's S T E P E K. Fantastic. So we'll put links. Um, obviously in the show notes, but uh, thank you for that. So I think it's time for media picks. What do you say, Tim? Why not? Why, Why not? not? Let's John, do it. Do you, do you want to do you want to kick off, John? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, this one this one's a classic. You might have heard of. Uh, I, I just read War and Peace, um, and because uh, every so often I have these sort of like manic fits of self improvement. But I think I should read something worthwhile rather than the usual kind of science fiction or investment guff that I clogged my mind up with. And so I sort of undertook the, the mission to uh, read it, thinking that it was going to be a sort of uh, intellectual all brand, uh, you know, kind of good for you, but not really that tasty. It sounds, I, I, <laughs> it sounds stupid. Oh, yeah, mine says War and Peace is a good book. But actually, <laughs> well, it's the intellectual all brand that won me over. Exactly. It was a real page turner, actually. I, I was I really enjoyed it. And um and again, very psychologically astute. You so there's a lot of points where you're reading it and you're thinking, wow, he's really nailed how that feels or that particular type of family relationship. Um and he's actually got a couple of good quotes about gold and paper money in there as well. So it's there is um it's, yeah, if you if you don't think you're the sort of person that would normally read War and Peace, I'd, I'd suggest you you change your mind because I I didn't think it was something I was going to enjoy, but it, it was great. Classic for a reason, obviously. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. So 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 Tim, you're good self. Well, my, my my fear would be that whereas with most books you say oh I couldn't put it down with something like War and Peace, I say I couldn't pick it up but anyway. <laughs> um, so my mine for this week or for this for this episode is. Uh, uh, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, ghost stories and horror stories and, and the macabre. And I've recently got into a chap by the name of Robert Aikman. Now, I was gratified to see that when I popped into Waterstones in Piccadilly last week, they actually had a, a number of his books in print, but he's quite difficult to track down because um, he's been out of print for a long time. But Robert Aikman, A-I-C-K-M-A-N, is uh, difficult to describe, really. I'd say the, the thing about him, if you'd like things that are let's say inclining towards the dark in your fiction then robert aikman may well be someone you find intriguing in terms of the show notes i would link to uh to probably two specifically he's probably best read rather than watched because the the kind of themes he 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 deals with are, are, they're, they're very dreamlike so you you kind of thinking is this really happening or is this more like more like it has the qualities of a dream or a, or a nightmare um, so it's slightly, slightly surreal, slightly off center. But there are two things that I think will, will really determine whether you, you rate the guy or not. One is um, there's a radio adaptation of one of his short stories called Ringing the Changes, which is fantastically creepy. Um, and there's a there's a recording that I, I came across on YouTube. And the other one is a, a little short film. I think it's about an hour long called The Hospice, which is creepy in a, in a sort of different sense. But anyway, the, the, the guy's name is Robert Aikman. And he is, for some, he is the best writer. What he didn't call them ghost stories; he called them strange stories. 
But if you'd like your fiction uncanny, then Robert Aikman is rapidly becoming quite a, an interesting uh, acquired taste for me. Superb. That sounds great. Yeah, that's superb, Tim. Thank you. I don't know if you read Tim's weekly uh, weekly commentary, John, but it's um, it's either mm. very good or fantastic. And there's a couple of times when you've just got to go, oh my god, this is so good. So I've got a I've got a highlight too that I really thought were excellent, and one is higher. Harry Markopoulos, that was excellent. And the more mm. recent one is Mark Carney, the biggest canute in the world, which I just <laughs> absolutely, absolutely <laughs> su- superb. Just, I mean, t- I've, I'm involved in making films, so I make short films, writing, directing them. And uh, I, I, so when you were saying right at the top of the show, John, that you, were, you wanted to be a screenwriter, I would suggest that there's nothing to stop you still. You know, the technology in the world of film has made it so that it's uh, very more, much more accessible than you think. You can actually have a, in the same way that you can invest on your own, you can also make films on your own if you wanted to, or, or certainly write them anyway. Um, so I would encourage that. I'll be in touch. Yeah, please do. No, I'd be very interested in, in any ideas. I'm trying to convince Tim to write a script, uh, you know, a short film, because I think, he, he, you know, his style of writing is just fantastic because he makes finance interesting and, and enjoyable and entertaining. And if you can do that with such a dry subject, then what can you do with your imagination is my argument. But anyway. The, the, uh, the, problem, I've, the problem I've got is that all my, all my scripts tend to be, my screenplays tend to be centred in, uh, the Cayman Islands, or the Bahamas, <laughs> yeah. Monaco. We, we've got to wait until we're sponsored by Amazon Prime, you know, before we can start making or, or, or Netflix. Netflix. I'm not Abs- fussy. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, it will get there, but yeah. So, um, so yeah. Please, you know, don't ru- ever rule that out. But the the um, n- knowing that I couldn't, you know, get away with just saying that. I've um, I've only recently just watched, and please don't let your jaw hit, jaw hit the floor. I've only just recently watched Inside Job, and have you? Have either of you seen it? I realised I haven't watched it. No, it's um, absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's crisis porn, of course, but it's uh, <laughs> it's and even though we were there and you you know you knew what was going on, I think it's a fantastic place for anybody who wants to learn about finance. I think before you do anything, you should just watch Inside Job just to see what happened and how it unfolded. And we, we were aware inherently of a lot of things that were going on. Like, for example, I remember looking at the credit default swaps for Iceland, which is basically the cost of insuring the debt of the uh, Icelandic government. And the more likely it was that they were going to default, the higher the costs of their credit default swaps would go. So the chart would just be going up in a straight line and you'd be thinking, what is, they're bust, something's, something's wrong here. But this is this is months before it actually happened. So mm. the mark, that's why I use technicals because you can use charts to, to show you or use prices to show you that there's a problem somewhere before it's actually available in the, the, the general, you know, the, the general media. So inside job, despite being there, despite knowing quite a lot about what happened, having seen a few documentaries, it's, just i would say it's possibly the best one that's ever been made or the one that i've considered to be the top one it was just fantastic it's um it's narrated by matt damon and just just really very well made very very interesting and and you you sort of watch it and it sort of brings it all back again um but it just explains what really was going on in the background highly recommended 
to that point, Paul, have you seen the other the comedy The Other Guys? I have, yes. I've s- I saw it a long time ago. Because um, the the weird thing about The Other Guys is that it's uh, it's it's mostly sort of cornball, uh, you know, sort of lowest common denominator. It's, it's very it's quite puerile comedy. It's very funny, but it's very puerile comedy. But the the credit sequence goes into this amazing analysis of the cre- credit crisis. Yes, yes, about the number of people. Yeah, there's a exactly. infographics. And there's a, there's infographics, a lot, a lot yeah. of a lot of overlap with um, Inside Job. Yes, yes, indeed. That's exactly that's that's the film I was thinking of. Just as you were talking about the Inside Job, the, the credits for the other guys is. Uh... And this is the most <laughs> random thing imaginable. Yeah. Sort of buddy cop film that suddenly morphs into a, a extensive criticism of modern. American uh, political democracy. Yeah, it's very, very strange. I don't, I, I don't know whether the other guys was such a good film. By the way, I wasn't. I'm not. I'm not sure. I remember it being it, that it, good. It, it was redeemed by its credit sequence. But the credit sequence. I remember people just <laughs> watching the credit sequence and just going, "This is just genius." But um, absolutely fantastic. Look, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, and um, we wish you all the best for your book. And I'll certainly be buying a copy. And Tim, as always, thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners. I think we should do a couple of shout-outs. Um, Sound Money Matters uh, at Forever20 on Twitter. Thank you for being a new listener. As always, David Harrison, Millionaire Mentor. We really appreciate your support. Hamish Capital, good to say thank you for, uh, for all your comments on Twitter. We really do appreciate you being a listener. And to all our new listeners and the people who've liked and subscribed, thank you so much. Have a fantastic couple of weeks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.